Hello, welcome to oh. Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 11th of uh, No, it's the 9th of, of November. Um, <laughs> something is wrong with you me. You need to get glasses. I, I either need glasses or I need to like unclick my brain is constantly in a fog these days i feel you know like when people talk about long haul coronavirus and they say oh, that no. people's brains are in a fog i feel like i should get antibody tested because my brain has been this total fog and i can't really tell if my brain is always in this fog because i generally you know i'm generally very forgetful and uh clumsy or if and i finally found an excuse for that or <laughs> <laughs> or if i actually you know do have long haul covid I actually, I also like, you know, tried going surfing for the first time in a while last week, totally could not, had no lung capacity left. And I was mm. like, oh, wow, this oh, must no. not be the fact that I've sat on my ass for seven straight months doing absolutely <laughs> nothing, ga gaining weight and eating like, you know, my child's like junk food. <laughs> it must be because of long haul COVID. <laughs> um, the, um, anyway, I'm here with Tammy and Andy. We're post-election. Post uh, and, you know, we wanted to do two things on today's show. The first is we wanted to read a lot of your questions that you've been sending in. So we're going to spend the bulk of the show doing that. It's, uh, you know, like a mailbag type of thing. And the other thing that we're going to do, though, the first thing I think we should do is that we should talk a little bit about um, what happened on Saturday and the sort of, you know, like everybody is already throwing out their postmortems, right? Uh, but for the first, the first thing I want to ask is, uh, you know, on Saturday, they finally announced in the morning here, Tammy, Andy, uh, did you, did you feel much joy, relief? Like what, what did you feel when, when they finally announced it? So I, I mostly felt relief. Um, I didn't know. I mean, there's all these, uh, videos online of people celebrating in the streets and I didn't see very much around me. So I was like, where's the party? In Philadelphia, um, and then and then I just kind of like I think I think the vibe I got walking around was just that everyone just just felt a lot looser, a lot mm -hmm. more relaxed. We went out yeah. for dinner and they gave us uh, free mimosas for dinner, so that was our. Oh, but you went out to you can go to dinner. Yeah, it was, it was in a yeah it was safe social distance. It was in the backyard. <laughs> the weather was very good this that weekend. Sounds so for nice. Reason. Yeah, I have not. That, I I I was playing like this video game with this like. 20 year old kid in florida or something like that and he was telling me about how he goes to the club three times a week and how it's packed and nobody's like wearing a mask a dance club wow. like a club, yeah, club? i was oh i was like i was so jealous you know i was <laughs> like God horrifying. Damn, i've been here the thing about being here in the bay area is that we never really had any surge of coronavirus um like compared to the rest of the country certainly um but We've also been pretty much locked down for the past however long, you know, mm -hmm. um, since the beginning of it. So, like, there's one bar that I used to go to with my friend before all this started. It, it, you know, it's not even close to open. Like, nothing's open. You can, like, get beers on the sidewalk in Rockridge in Oakland or something like that. It sounds fucking terrible, you know? So, um, but these, I was so jealous of these kids. Now I'm jealous of Andy going out spreading, <laughs> spreading coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Super spreading. Uh, but the weather is so good in California. I would assume like yeah. socially distanced outdoor dining or drinking would would be totally um, okay, no? 
Uh, I th- maybe I don't know. I mean, don't quote me. Uh, somebody's gonna write in and be like, "I live in, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I live in 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 Temescal and I get drunk every night on the sidewalk." He's like, "That's fine, you know." Like, I, <laughs> I have not noticed anything being open that I would want to go to. And in fact, actually, we went into the uh, Academy of Sciences in San Francisco this weekend, which is like a big museum that has an aquarium, and uh, they it's all indoors and everyone, you know, but it was so packed and we were down there and I was, I was like, I can't do this. And so, you know, um, we, we left pretty early, but it's, it's, it's weird. There's different varying degrees of openness all over the country, even within places. But, um, I haven't been out to dinner, uh, since all this started. Have you, Tammy? I, I've been going to bars outside. It's now like <laughs> 25 degrees here, though, so that's going to change. But it snowed all weekend, which is actually really pretty. It felt kind of like purifying, you know? I also um, felt just like total relief, like I'd taken like a 40-year shower or something, you know? But yeah. we'll see. Now I'm starting to feel that familiar sense of dread. i felt a lot of relief too i don't know we have like a limited amount of time i'm glad i wasted four minutes talking about like what i eat for dinner so um i felt a similar amount of relief and then you know it was uh, probably like seven hours of feeling great you know and then three hours of forgetting it had happened because i was involved in various like you know i was watching various sports and then and then and then uh and then almost immediately, right, you start seeing Jim Clyburn and Nancy Pelosi and the people, the centrist Democrats sort of coming out and already like you just won, I you know, know, and then blaming so and then blaming the left, you know, blaming Black Lives Matter, blaming the protests, like blaming anything, blaming defund the police, blaming anything that they could blame for the congressional uh, results, which is not great for the Democrats. And, you know, never, of course, looking at themselves, never one looking at what they did, uh, the candidates that they ran, sort of platforms that they offered, what they offered people. And then that was followed up by AOC uh, over the weekend talking to Stead Herndon in the New York Times and sort of throwing, you know, throwing punches back, which I thought was great and necessary. Um, but yeah, like, what did any of these sort of postmortems uh, entice you or did you did you agree with any of them tammy i was super relieved to see aoc's interview um i think it's been rare in our lifetimes to see somebody like that who's able to not only run on a progressive sort of left part of the party but really push back and like not take shit from them like to me that just felt really great and yeah i just feel real disgust for the party i don't even know really how to talk about it because i like here in Montana, just because it's so it's taken such a right wing turn, like I want to be able to say something sort of positive about the Democrats and explaining my views or kind of prognosis. But if I were 21, I think I've said this before, I would just I would probably just be like an anarchist. Because I would, <laughs> why would you have faith in this party or like believe anything they say? Like it would be so meaningful if a Pelosi got up in front of the country and was like, "Wow, we won by very small margins." Like. Thank you guys for supporting. Like, we failed. We're going to fix ourselves. We're like, we're taking a moment for introspection. Like, I, I, I know, don't understand why that would be weakening. Like, that is such a great, that would be amazing. And like, not also like not being able to co- like connect things like, 
the record black turnout in places like Detroit exactly. and, and Milwaukee yeah. and Atlanta was, brought, was, you know, what got people politically activated, you know, in the last year, I wonder, you know, right? like what, know. what sort of brought people to the forefront <laughs> yeah. and believing that like, that, that there needed to be like a real meaningful change and to try and do everything possible, including voting for Joe Biden and Democratic candidates. Um, what infrastructure was, was built, like what events were able to build like grassroots infrastructure Seriously. when millions of people are out in the streets and just ignoring all of that, you know, like I don't even care what side of the ideological divide you're on. Like you can be a fucking Republican, but like those are just factual right. things that happen, you know, and like for them to ignore all that and just be like the defund the police me uh, message was very harmful for us. Because like, first of all, you won the fucking election, you know, and so the, the, the only election that the 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 presidential election the one that you cared the most about but secondly like you know like uh like you're blaming like fucking activists you yeah. know yeah. like who have no power they just have like a twitter account and you're saying it's their fault like what <laughs> yeah. are they supposed to do like they're just supposed to fall in line with you you know like it's so weird and myopic in my mind where it's just like these people with all this power all this messaging power millions of dollars spent on these stupid consultants right so many like, consultants. They, like the only thing that they can figure out to do is like blame like some 23 year old like black person who has a twitter account or like a 23 year old like you know like latino organizer or something like that like Seriously. those are the people that they blame it's despicable who I don't probably know. canvassed it, for you who probably yeah. fought the police on the streets and then like actually went door to yeah. door for you yeah. like 100 <laughs> so and crazy. definitely voted for you and yeah. voted down the line you know like the number of people who like threatened to not vote for either candidate and didn't was like infinitesimally small you know yeah like it was like a total canard and then they're you know like they're doing the same thing they always do which is just reach out to like white republicans try and yeah. try and swap their uh mind but it's like like even outside of the strategy part, right? Like the insult part yeah. was what really got me afterwards. I was just like, fuck you, you Seriously, know? Man. <laughs> like we, <laughs> we just went through all of this, you know, we voted for your guy and then you're just gonna <laughs> come right out. Like it hasn't even been 12 hours and you're swinging and fucking insulting everybody, you know? Like it's just, I don't know, I find it despicable. Yeah. Uh, Andy, are, are you on your way to anarchism? <laughs> <laughs> Well, in terms of like that, Tammy's comment about why you would ever support the Democratic Party, I think one bright silver lining is that there's so many groups now that are not the Democratic Party that you could put your energy into. Uh, that obviously, you know, in this election in particular, contributes to voting for Biden. But like, in, like yeah. there's infrastructure in place to mobilize. I mean, I, I think an argument that we would want to make or that is plausible is that Biden won not from the Democratic activity, but by the activity of progressive groups that aim towards the youth. I say that like I'm a very old the person. Youth. <laughs> the youth. The youth, young people. Um, yeah. You know, there's a study in Tuff, that Tufts uh, came out with that said probably the decisive factor in places like Arizona, Georgia, and the upper Midwest was the young vote, where participation yeah. was super high. So for so, that, for instance. And let me yeah, just so, give some numbers here, Andy, and then you can continue yeah. for the listeners. So the, the study you're citing in Michigan, 62% of you supported Biden compared to 35% for Trump. That gave him a huge. 194,000 youth edge vote, which is, you know, significant in a close state, even though Michigan wasn't that close. Georgia, right? Um, he got 188,000 more youth votes. Arizona, right? Um, I think that like the youth vote there was 128,000 more from young people in Pennsylvania. Um, let's see, 154,000 more youth votes from Trump that, than Trump, right? All these states were decided by very small margins. And people of color, 
overwhelmingly voted for young people of color overwhelmingly voted for Biden too. 87%, 83%, 73%. And eh, well, white youth didn't 51% for white youth. <laughs> white youth were. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, Andy, I'm And, and that report even has its own specific section on um, black young voters in Georgia, which is, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of heartwarming. Yeah. And I think uh, maybe what Tammy, Tammy's getting at is like, how do you look yourself in the mirror and call yourself a Democrat? And that's kind of, the kind of nice thing is you don't have to anymore. You could say like, I'm part of this group. I'm part of that group. And yeah, we vote for the Democratic candidate every four years. But yeah, in the meantime, point. you don't have to like, you know, be an anarchist in the meantime. You could you could be an anarchist. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> the, one, the one thing I saw in terms of this AOC fight that was interesting was I think the, the probably correct interpretation is something like um, if you just kind of projected high Republican turnout and just guessed which seats would flip, like basically purple seats would flip. Those are the ones that flipped. And so that larger structural question probably matters more than this whole, like, who supported Medicare for all, they all won, who didn't support Medicare for mm. all, they all lost. Like, that is true, but I think it isn't as simple as, like, you know, you put someone in the middle of South Carolina and, and support Medicare for all, and they're going to win necessarily, right? Like, AOC yeah. can support right. far-left issues because she's she's safe and, and so on. Mm. Uh, but I, so I, I think, um, yes, but obviously I support, like, her, her clapping back and, and pushing back on that. I think... Uh, you know, there's a lot to, that's going to be sorted out in terms of like how this was won. But I do think Georgia and Arizona should be kind of the things that we, you know, we really re- wrestle with um, if we want to make a make an argument for why progressives should be listened to more uh, within the Democratic Party. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was thinking about this today. There is just like I feel like if one of the two sides, right, either like the Trump right or the or the left in America decided to actually do like a third party that the other side would immediately that same day do a third party, right? <laughs> the only thing stopping it is like both sides are in this sort of like standoff, you know, where they're like, well, we can't quite do this because we're going to lose all the big general like national elections, you know, but if the other side does it, then, you know, then, <laughs> then we can just do it. We just have to make sure that our numbers are exactly the same <laughs> as their numbers. But until somebody does that, we're kind of stuck here, right? Like, um, I don't really understand why the Trump right doesn't do their own party, honestly. I think they might, I right? Think, like, don't you think they've successfully taken over the GOP? I kind of think they have. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we'll see going forward because I, yeah. I don't know what, like, the power of you know, the GOP is ultimately run by like, you know, dark money and the people who give money to all these down ballot races and sort of think tank infrastructure hold on on Washington probably has lessened somewhat. So I agree with you in that sense. But I don't know, like who, you know, what what's Tom Cotton going to do, you know, um, or Matt Gates? I guess Matt Gates could start his own party or something like that. That would be entertaining. <laughs> um, God, I God forbid. Holy shit. I've been reading um, a lot about the early 20th century, like labor party, socialist party formations. And, you know, I don't know, just trying to like figure out what, how they were thinking about politics and how we should be thinking about politics. But the conversations they were having are basically the same as we're having now. <laughs> Whereas, about the like two how, party system and all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like yeah. the social, there was disagreement between the socialists and the communists about whether like engaging in electoral politics at all made any sense. And, you know, how the labor unions should line up with the state versus these parties. Anyway, so I, I've been in a bit of a muddle, but I, I would, yeah, I definitely want to be more committed to building something. And if it's not a full fledged independent party, just, I don't know, something that actually exerts influence in a meaningful way. 
which we really yeah. haven't had quite yet. I mean, I think DSA, WFP, a lot of activist groups have done really good stuff in like local, you know, localities, but they're really not the level of player we need. Yeah. I mean, quite yet. I'm starting to think local stuff. I've, I've always probably been a little bit too like poo pooey about like local stuff mattering more, but like the fact that local stuff flipped Arizona and Georgia, which it's were huge. very decisive. Yeah. is a really instructive experience, right? That you don't Absolutely. have to. And so like, Trying to trying to flip fifty states at once is kind of impossible, right? But if you just flip one or two key states, that could really true. like you know that can matter that can matter a lot. So I yeah. think that's I'm starting to come around to like yeah, and also like I have none of us have any influence on the Biden campaign, you know. So like, but we do have influence perhaps in like our local local politics more. Um, we have one more thing that we should discuss before we get to your listener questions, which is that Tucker Carlson did his own postmortem on Trump, right? And um, we're going to play some of it for you right here. Why did all those people come? Why? They must have known that Donald Trump is the most evil man who's ever lived. They've heard that every day for five years. They know that people who support Donald Trump are also evil. They're bigots, they're morons, they're racist cult members. They know that Americans have been fired from their jobs for supporting Donald Trump. Not to mention kicked off social media, belittled by their kids' teachers, shunned by decent society. Only losers and freaks support Donald Trump. People in Butler knew all of that. But on Saturday, they went to the Donald Trump rally anyway. Why exactly did they do that? We should be pondering that question deeply as we watch tomorrow's returns and as we live through the aftermath of them. Millions of Americans sincerely love Donald Trump. They love him in spite of everything they've heard. They love him often in spite of himself. They're not deluded. They know exactly who Trump is. They love him anyway. They love Donald Trump because no one else loves them. The country they built, the country their ancestors fought for over hundreds of years, has left them to die in their unfashionable little towns mocked and despised by the sneering halfwits with finance degrees, but no actual skills, who seem to run everything all of a sudden. Whatever Donald Trump's faults, he is better than the rest of the people in charge. At least he doesn't hate them for their weakness. Donald Trump, in other words, is and has always been a living indictment of the people who run this country. That was true four years ago, when Trump came out of nowhere to win the presidency, and it's every bit as true right now. It may be even more true than it's ever been, and it will remain true, regardless of whether Donald Trump wins re-election. Trump rose because they failed. It's as simple as that. If the people in charge had done a halfway decent job with the country they inherited, if they'd cared about anything other than themselves, even for just a moment, Donald Trump would still be hosting Celebrity Apprentice but they didn't. Instead, they were incompetent and narcissistic and cruel and relentlessly dishonest. They wrecked what they didn't build. They lied about it. They hurt anyone who told the truth about what they were doing. That's true. We watched. America is still a great country, the best in the world, but our ruling class is disgusting. A vote for Trump is a vote against them. That's what's going on in that picture. That's what's going on in this country. Uh, okay, Tammy, what, what do you think about this? 
Yeah, I found this clip incredibly moving and (laughs) found myself kind of nodding (laughs) along to some of his diagnosis, honestly, which actually was kind of similar to what we were talking about last week in terms of like trying to understand like the appeal, the the just deep emotional and like appeal that that Trump has for people. And um, I think one thing about this clip that was really touching to me. That's such a weird word to use for Tucker Carlson. Sorry, don't cancel Man. me. But like, damn it, you're canceled. <laughs> yeah, holy shit. Um, but just this emphasis on like Trump said again. Trump said the right things, whether or not he that was truthful. People felt seen and heard, and like we just really we just that's it. That's just such a basic of any organizing campaign, right? That you need to make people feel seen and heard. So I think. He's right. And I think, yeah, grappling with those photos out of Butler, grappling with the photos around the country of people just utterly devoted to him. Like, those are people we have to organize, right? We can't just wash this away. Yeah, I I, I tend to agree. And I think that, but we're so far away from, um, from that in terms of the Democratic Party's leadership. Yeah, like, they're not going to do it. <laughs> They're never going to do it. And we're so, like, I feel like sometimes you and I are in a bubble because we work in the media. We're exposed to like one type of person over and over again. And, um, and it's just impossible for us, me to imagine those people ever being no, in line with aiding no. that type of messaging either. Um, what do you, what do you mean by that? Coveraging. What do you mean? Like the type of person in media. Everyone went to like an Ivy League school. Like dismissive like, liberals, I guess, who who are yeah. sort of like those people can't be convinced that's not like our organizing target. And I, but I think like in you know in church, like I'll borrow like Jane McAlevey here, the labor organizer, but like churches and labor unions, other sorts of like robust like bodies like that, they have to look at this population, right? And like that is their population. And I think in those formations, we really need to like have a hard conversation about, oh man. This is real. This isn't going away. This is not a fluke of 2016. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I just don't, I just feel like within the media, at least, because that's the one area that I do know, you know, quite a bit about. It's just never going to be, they're never going to divorce themselves from this idea of like a Wajahat Ali style, like, you know, diverse (laughs) elite, elite community, right? Like, that's what they want. They want like everyone they want a lot of races to go to Harvard and they want a lot of races to live in like Montclair, New Jersey or, <laughs> um, or the Upper West Side or Park Slope, right? They want like PS321, but they want pre-S321 to have more black students in it, right? Like that's basically it, right? They don't want the things to change. They don't want PS321 to become like a quote unquote worse school. You know, they don't want the other, which of course then means because that the other schools won't will still be bad, quote unquote, bad schools. You know, they don't care about that. They care about making their specific elite spaces more diverse. That's what they care about. This Biden victory sort of validates them in that sort of sense, right? Like you see all the stuff with Kamala and stuff like that coming out, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I don't know. I think that the one question that I have after this is just like watching this Tucker clip and watching a lot of the stuff that's happening. Like I find talker just as repulsive as everybody else does including tammy and andy but the central question of if you're on the left and you're organizing right if you're on the left and you're trying to figure out what the messaging is going to be like in the next four years now that trump is gone but the threat of trumpism isn't gone like is it like is it still incumbent upon 
us to just go out and attack that vision, you know, like the vision of like a diverse PS321. <laughs> PS321, for those don't, who don't know, is like the is like the public school in Park Slope, Brooklyn, which is like the quote unquote best pub public school and all these, you know, publishing people and news people send their kids there. And uh, it's like 84% white or 74% white, whereas like, you know, every other elementary school isn't, you know, the people who send their kids there certainly grapple with that contradiction, but, you know, they won't change their behavior at all. And so like, is it necessary to attack that, that vision of like a multicultural elite society that is sort of now like the main messaging of the Democratic Party? Yeah. You know, the Tucker Carlson thing, the one other thing that kind of came that I came away with from the Tucker Carlson thing is, uh, you know, if you put that, if you just show this to a stranger and then just told them, you know, the Biden message of soul of the nation, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Tucker Carlson, they would just be persuaded by the Tucker Carlson one. Ten, ten, ten out of ten times, I feel like it's just so, so much more persuasive and I think um, resonant mm -hmm. with what they feel is going on in this country. The the one thing I would say, you know, I was, I was watching this video of um, Adolf Rita talk to the pen justice democrats and this is a video that's online where he was kind of saying you know a lot and what you could think of trump as kind of like this bizarre obama in the sense that mm -hmm. obama you know with this hope he changing message right he was actually providing like this positive vision vision forward that you know trump didn't actually have a plan but that's what he was kind of selling these people like a positive vision i don't think the democrats including biden this time like you know offered that i think they were just talking about uh resistance which is not a positive vision it's about like just you know going back to the, the way the way things used to be um it was you know anti-trump it was like all negative stuff and like you know for people who have felt just like things are getting worse and worse like they want something positive to vote for but i don't think like you know obama did it like it's not that crazy but just for whatever reason like the last you know the last several uh elections the democrats seem brain dead about this and they just don't want to like offer a positive vision uh, of change so i don't know that's it doesn't seem to be getting um into their heads and, and there's an article in political about how trying to sell how biden was smart for not campaigning door to door and it's just like my gosh in their sad. head right in, in their head they won the election by keeping biden in the basement ignoring all the data we're talking about where where georgia and arizona were flipped by doing door-to-door -door knocking right and, and exactly actually well, being these... on the streets I mean, it's the same thing as like these people who like, uh, you know, it's the same class of people who go out and say that like the NBA championship is won by like a general manager who decide who like brings in a marginally better three point shooter from the corners and not by like LeBron James, the greatest basketball player to ever live. You know, it's this consultant class uh, ideology that like that some that some godhead who went to Harvard gets to sit behind the desk and get all the credit for everything because they pull out four fucking charts and make like three determinations and <laughs> scratch their chin and talk to fucking Matt Iglesias on Twitter. You know, like that's, that's it, you know? And I don't know. I, I think just going back to what I was saying, Andy, like, you know, like in terms of compelling arguments, these arguments are created by people. Like now everybody, every one of those people is doing, what's the big narrative? What's the big story that we're going to do going forward? And I'm just like, fuck you. You know, yeah. your big story is you're going to hire Robbie Mook again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're going to blame the shit on like fucking people on Twitter. You know, you're going to do your group text about cancel culture and how you think it's bad, you know. And you're not going to do jack shit, but you're going to get the lion's share of all the credit for everything like this, you know, and, and I just don't see that ever changing. So um, I don't know. That's my that's my like sobering note post like a 
you know, what should be a happy <laughs> moment. I just could not believe how quickly these fucking people came out and started attacking the left. Right. Yeah. After, you know, like, do you remember when we were like saying they're going to attack the left the second the election is over and these big brain guys like uh, like pundit guys were like, no, they won't, you know, uh, just they don't worry about it. Yeah, they, they know like he he's going to hire the most progressive candidate. Yeah. And now like the fucking second the secretary of commerce is going to be Meg fucking Whitman. Meg fucking Meg Whitman is like uh, is like Peter Thiel. You know, she's like a straight up Ayn Rand, like libertarian. <laughs> like, good, what the yeah. fuck are you talking about? Of course that was going to happen. Anyway, uh, enough ranting. Um, <laughs> should we get to the listener? Yeah, <laughs> well, let's, yeah. let's go to the listener question. Yeah, maybe let's show uh, us up more. Um, okay. So we have a lot of questions from you. We can't read all of them, but we're going to eventually, we do res- try to respond to all of them. I think we've done a pretty good job with that. And uh, we're going to read some of them on the show today. Um, let, let's, let's go back and forth and reading these, uh, Andy, do you have them open? Do you want to read the first one? Um, should we just go down in order or should we choose our own? Yeah, let's go in order. Okay. So number one is from Neil on Twitter. Um, I won't say the full handle. Uh, IRL underscore Neil. (laughs) We should say the the handle. (laughs) I I don't know if people want to. IRL Neil. Yeah. Um, on the pod recently, you've discussed the politics of Asian small business owners, especially in light of the Black Lives Matter movement, racism against Asian Americans in the COVID era, and the various economic pressures. Do all small business owners need to be crushed for socialism? <laughs> yes, yes or no question. Does addressing the regressive aspects of small business, such as exploitation, low wages, discrimination, et cetera, productivity, <laughs> bad, bad productivity, um, potentially lead to a backlash, especially among the wider community? So basically, you know where do the petty bourgeoisie fall within yeah. within within the left um and i i was also saying offline we could also fold in that sort of ongoing pmc discussion too um do you want to explain happening. that real quick yeah so the, i mean there's an article from barbara ironreich ironreich in the 70s about where do the professional manager class fit in in the sense mm-hmm. that on the one hand like like university professors are technically wage workers and should have class alliances with you know um everyone else in like service and manual labor on the other hand, you know, they see themselves as uh, culturally elite and more in common with the capitalist than with the, with the working class. So um, I think the question is always like they're sort of um, underdetermined, right, they, or overdetermined, either one. They could go with the top, they could go with the bottom. Um, and I guess like the sm- small business, you know, there's this discourse of like in America, of, like the like the real like the real like victims or the small the the, the, the underdogs are the small businesses. But then, you know, actually they like own capital <laughs> and, and they like have employees. So like, where do they fit into all of this? And then I guess that conversation has taken place without kind of considering the stuff we've been talking about, with the, which is, you know, immigrant values or where do immigrants mm-hmm. see themselves in the broader conversation? Um, yeah. Yeah. Tammy, what do you think? What do, you, do you think we have to crush all small businesses, for, <laughs> you know, and uh, re- replace them with nationalized Applebee's with union workers everywhere. <laughs> the low productivity no. part of this question kills me. <laughs> or like, you know, like how, co- you know, how, like Costco pays for the college education of its employees and, you know, stuff like that. Do, does, do all small Korean shops need to be crushed and replaced with Costco? With, you know? <laughs> I know this uh, with- is an ongoing conversation I have with my friend who's a brewer when I'm like, oh, I had posted something like support union breweries. And she's like, those are all of the monster breweries. Like we shouldn't support the union breweries. Anyway, whatever. Um, 
Yeah, like, I'm gonna have my course light made by union workers. <laughs> exactly, it's like you have <laughs> shitty beer and bad working conditions. You, but okay, you can take you can take your overly hoppy IPA and your paper and your and, and your wage slavery. Get the fuck out my face. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, I felt chastened by this question a little bit, and also because um, I think actually Neil mentioned in the question, but you guys may have also heard Adam Schatz's recent interview with Mike Davis. And Mike actually talks about, he extends this argument to actually address this category he calls the lumpen billionaire class, mm, yeah. which is the kinds of Betsy DeVos, like yeah. not, you know, as opposed to like the Fords of the world or whatever. And I think this is a really challenging point. I don't, so I think, okay, concretely, I think like in order to build alliances, we can't dismiss all small businesses, right? And certainly like because of the rates of entrepreneurship among new immigrants, this is especially true if you care about any kind of like whatever POC organizing as like flimsy as that might be. However, I do wonder about what how strategically you sell universal programs to these people. So I think one thing is like, the thing we, I think the three of us like love and always like talking about is like, you know, universal healthcare. Like this is one of those things where I think actually that appeals both to like yeah. the working class, right? But also small business owners, because well, that is the number one headache for these people to have to yeah, deal with. For right? sure. Yeah. So anyway, I, I'm interested in looking for stuff like that, but I think we still need to hold these people account. I definitely obviously think that as employers, they need to like follow labor laws, all that stuff. <laughs> but I do think there are ways to strategically define our interests alongside them from time to time. Yeah, it's it's very difficult. It's it's a tough one. And I think Tammy, your one angle into it is probably gonna be the only effective one. Because then the reality of it is that like these people are, are capitalists, you know, they believe For that's sure. why a lot of them came to the United States and they want to buy a Mercedes and move out to Diamond <laughs> Bar and, and send their kid to, you know, Stanford or, you know, if if God is cruel, Pomona or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. My sister went to Pomona. It's a great college. Her uh, her her editor at the news. I, I I shouldn't say too much about my sister because I you know she's a private person. But her editor at the student newspaper was Connor Friedersdorf. You know, oh my god! Guy at the that is too funny. <laughs> she said he was a nice guy, um, which I actually I think Connor, despite you know me disagreeing with every single thing he says, is actually you know probably a somewhat nice guy or is a nice guy um all right so um all right let's go to the next one um i'll read this one which is um we are going to china this is listener hasui or hasui i don't know how to pronounce it i apologize how do you think the how do you all think the biden administration will change our relationship with china do you think biden will simply put build upon the hysterical inertia turned up by the trump administration or is it reasonable to hope that biden will develop a chinese american relationship that goes beyond this implicit Cold War framework. I want to add in here that Matt Stoller was like, you know, is being like talked about for a cabinet position. Oh, my God. Or some sort of position in the administration. So with that information, Tammy, I don't know if that's true or not. I read it in a Politico article. So who fucking knows? But um, uh, Annie, what do you think? Do you think do you think this changes our relationship with China? I don't, so I don't think we know we we in like the China community, uh, the China watchers. <laughs> there's like a lot of speculative articles. I did kind of like skim around to see when I saw this question. I was like, oh, well, I should <laughs> I should actually prepare a little. Um, I don't think we know. I think the 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 best kind of precedent. Well, so like being anti-China or not anti-China, containing China is bipartisan. I think that's pretty clear. So it's not just a part one, you yeah. know, a, a Republican mm-hmm. thing. Um, I think that we might see a return to sort of the Obama framework of the TPP. Right, which is yeah. about 
getting not necessarily confronting China directly, but just kind of multilaterally creating alliances. Um, I remember, I don't even know what the status of the TPP is. And I remember when, when Trump got elected, I happened to be in Japan and they were talking about it. So like it was still alive, like like Abe was going to pick up the TPP and and they weren't like it, dealing, yeah. dealing with the reality that Trump or uh, Biden had lost. So I think I think that's probably what we're going to see is still trying to contain China, but doing it in a more artful way rather than like, you know, threatening and saying China virus. They're probably not going to say China virus. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> the one concrete difference, but they're probably going to try to build alliances and contain China uh, through multilateral efforts, I think. Yeah, they're not going to say Kung Flu. <laughs> what about the business relationship? Do you think that there's going to be a harder line on and maybe like, you know, places like Apple or uh, the NBA that have these relationships with China are going to have to like answer for, you know, like Xinjiang or anything like yeah. that? Yeah, I, I did see somewhere like the Democrats were more credible for whatever that means on human rights issues. Uh, I don't know why, you know, like because because they talk about it, I guess, a lot more. Uh I don't know. I mean, like, I, I've always kind of felt like that stuff is always like real politic anyway. Like, it's not so much like gen- genuine, sincere concern. It's it's like, what 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 chess pieces can we play? Um, so yeah, they might. I, I I did. I was also reading, you know, our friend of the show Brian Hugh from New Bloom wrote a piece about how this is all being consumed in Taiwan, and it's interesting because in Taiwan they always kind of think the Republicans are more friendly to Taiwan than than the Democrats. So there's actually quite a bit of reaction in Taiwan that this is bad news and because because mm-hmm. the democrats biden is seen as like pro china um but i think a lot of this stuff is just like well we, we have to wait and see and honestly like even like georgia might determine some of this because a lot of these appointments have to go through the senate right so um I yeah, think this, yeah these things true. are these are open i i think the, th- the main thing is um containing china is bipartisan i think that's a kind of baseline yeah. takeaway i think that's true and i didn't i mean biden just called she a thug right in the debate and stuff so he is also posturing in a certain direction inspired by trump i do think though like at the granular like real politic like diplomacy level i mean i don't want to sound too like samantha powersy but like (laughs) i do believe in diplomacy to the extent that like i believe that like diplomacy is whatever sitting down with your enemies all that bullshit like that i think is like part of a functioning state and i think the state department will be cleaned up in this administration a bit, you know, because basically like it wasn't functioning at all. Like so many people had left like basic, just sit down meetings and like phone calls with all these States around the world had collapsed. So that's not, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go in like a progressive direction, but I do wonder whether there'll just be more kind of points of contact and things being discussed that could potentially just open up space for us to do our organizing in that direction. Yeah. I, I think that they'll probably just, you know, sweep it under the rug and not talk about China very much. That's my prediction. Just focus Why? on domestic politics? Yeah, because it just allow like the, you know, corporate interests to continue to have their relationships and not drum up too much problem. Like, isn't that what those companies ultimately want? They want it to like not be front and center and have to talk about yeah. Uyghur populations and... You know, militarized. Just operate quietly in that Yeah, just do it quietly. Way. Yeah, they I have, don't know. But I think they have to look for look 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 ahead in terms of what the GOP will try to politicize it in the future. So they have to mm. somehow like be tough-ish on China, um, so that they're not vulnerable. I think. I will That's say I'll, something else. I saw this weekend. I think on Chinese social media, there's a lot of memes of like Trump as a double agent. 
oh my and they're gosh like, and they're like they're funny. like they're like sad that he lost <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> next question let's 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 get through a few more of these so um okay so these this is about the limits of asian american identity we had two questions about this from listener henry and listener kathy henry identifies as south asian american and kathy is a says she is a millennial Vietnamese Canadian. So Henry asks, what does a broad Asian American conversation look like around issues like the so-called war on terror? DHS uh, targets brown Muslim Asians, but not East Asians. What do South Asians have to do with Sinophobia? Why is a broad, sometimes messy categorization of Asian Americanness useful for leftist politics today? Kathy asks, if you're curious as to why Viet people support Trump, there's a lot of in parentheses, illogical reasons why. But the primary is that they will rally behind anyone who spews anti-China rhetoric. They have been scorched by communism in the motherland and cannot seem to accept that it's been 40 to 50 years since they have left the country and the world is different now. The idea of Asian American solidarity, as you guys have pointed out, is complete bullshit. So, uh, Tammy, what do you think about this? Like, um, what do you think about what Henry said about, uh, about you know, is, is this even like, useful for left politics to have Asian American as a, as a category. I, so I think, I don't know that the category, the political category of Asian American, like the API heritage month plus democratic party version of Asian American was ever helpful during the war on terror. I don't know what you guys remember, but I feel like a lot of that work had to be done by like Brown Oh yeah. Problems, yeah. Right. And like East yeah. Asians like totally did not do anything. And yeah. so I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think like during the Trump administration, I think it's been a little, there's been a little bit more unity just because of the severity of the attacks like early on against Mexicans and Muslim people. Um, but whether I, I, I don't actually think Asian American is useful for left politics. <laughs> Um, I think we might be able, I think we should, we're trying to do, we're trying, we should be trying to build like a cross race, like class politics in this particular moment. Um, and the Asian Americanness could be useful potentially when we're talking about like language and cultural like familiarity, but I don't know that like, as a, that's like a political category that I would want to invest in for left change. Hmm. Yeah. Andy, Andy, what do you think? Like, Yeah, we got a comment. I don't know if it was these two, but somebody else also mentioned um, this idea of using immigrant rather than Asian American as the category. That was, that was me. That was, that was <laughs> Yeah. Like, I think it was, resp- I mean, it was responding to you and yeah, they were raising it. Yeah. I think, right. I mean, my instinct is not so much politics, but thinking just historically, like I think why it is a useful category at a, in a minimalist level, right? Not as a sort of like, this is my full identity is that there is a shared history um, of a certain generation, right? That's, you know, the, that kind of encompasses us. And I think uh, that is probably shared in common by a lot of people from that part of the world. And I know, you know, Asia is like half the world and is internally heterogeneous and there's lots of differences, right? But those parts of the world are also kind of close to each other and they, and they are, their, their reference points are shared to some, to some degree in common um, and I think that that is an int- that's a useful entry point, I think, potentially for people to relate to each other when they're like otherwise strangers or mm. otherwise, you know, don't have, yeah. don't know what they have in common. I'm with Tammy and I'm with both of you, actually. I think that it's <laughs> it's basically useless for people like us, you know, and I think it was completely <laughs> Did useless. Did we say that? <laughs> post 9-11. But or we're all like post, <laughs> Yeah, post 9-11 is so useless, right? Like, Tammy, yeah, you're right. Like, it's not like people like, oh, my 
Asian brothers being attacked in the streets, you know, or had their mosque burned down. They're just like, no, I'm Asian, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, uh, but I do think that it, we have to sort of meet people where they are. And most people get politically activated around this sort of stuff in their youth. And at that point, they do identify as Asian. And I don't think you can undo that. You know, like you can't go in and be like, hey, by the way, have you considered, you know, like a more leftist categorization or like recategorizing <laughs> yourself in this sort of way? And so that you have to kind of push people through these stages. And I, I think that that it's hard to just say people aren't Asian, you know, um, and uh, you just have to sort of change what that means and politicize that further. And it can't just be like, you know, what we talk about on the show all the time as like boba politics. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it's just, I just don't think that you can like tell like an 18 year old who gets to UCLA from like, you know, they grew up in, I don't know, like Walnut Creek or something like that. Hey, you know, like, uh, stop it. <laughs> you know, stop being excited <laughs> that you're around these people who look like you. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. It sounds kind of fun to do that, honestly, you know, but it, you're not going to get very far. You're like, stop it. You know, be like just the person who goes to every Asian association meeting. It's like, you know, this really shouldn't exist. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be doing this. This is an antiquated but doing, category. Yeah, yeah. But I'm going to keep coming here until we change the name. Um, but anyway, you don't, you don't yeah. think in the 2000s, though, like for those of us who, came from immigrant households immigrant households and had that experience of being racialized and you know those words like otherwise and all that there there was not identity with the people who were racially profiled in the war on terror but at least like more than the average you know american born uh so probably that, yeah but yeah. that's just because we're minorities you know and, and immigrants I, I think probably most minorities felt that way but what it mm. yeah i I think, I think the immigrant right, part Andy, plays but like, plays what role. what do we do with yeah. it? I mean, that was yeah, my right. concern. It was just sure. like, you know, and I think that's that's like what we're testing this term against. Yeah. Like, what is the yeah. activity that ensues from? I that? mean, on the other hand, I feel like there weren't left Asian. Uh, there wasn't as much left Asian stuff in two thousand one as there is Fair. in twenty twenty with our podcast. And I do think yeah, I was gonna say it's the same number. It's the same number. There's just a, one podcast. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, we sh we shouldn't poo-poo the potential of there, I feel like. But I do feel like there wasn't anything at the time. That's true. Yeah. There was no like true. East Asians for South Asians and Muslims being racially profiled. Um, for sure. Yeah. As for Kathy, um, I you know, I I I think Kathy's sense of this is probably correct, right? Which is that um, you know, and it speaks to something that has been dissected over and over again since the election and you know I don't know why people didn't know this was true, but, you know, groups within Asian Asians, groups within Latinos, they all kind of hate each other, you know, at some <laughs> level. And so, like, the idea that they would all just like each other, like, I don't know, it seems ridiculous. And, um, you know, I, I think it all sort of spawns from this liberal idea that um, basically all immigrants should thank liberals for being less racist than the Democrats. Right. But they're not going to do any effort into actually thinking of figuring out how these immigrants think about anything in the world. And are just going to sort of see them as these like, kind of like pat them on the head and be like, you're doing great. You know, I'm not racist. And then assume they're all going to vote for them, which, you know, is very far from the truth as we saw. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, next question. Mixed race parenting. This is from listener M. I have a biracial Asian white child. 
What's that like these days? I have no idea. I don't even know what it's like being an Asian kid anymore. Are they still getting, quote, what are you? And, quote, are you Chinese and Japanese? My kid is still very small, but at some point, this is going to come up for them, and I don't want to fuck it up. I kind of hate the weird mixture of playing HR speak and blood science. <laughs> that nice with Listener M, you should really be a writer. This email is great. I kind of hate that uh, weird mixture of calling HR speak and blood science that nice middle class parents, of which I am one, used to coach their kids on, quote, diversity. And so find most of the popular advice on this subject irritating, if not actively harmful. Okay, great. Um, that's a great question. We could do an entire podcast on it. But I think this is pretty regional, don't you think? Like, I think it sense. depends where in the country you are. So if you're in a big metropolitan city, right, yeah. or if you're in a place like where I am in Berkeley, California, if you're in Brooklyn and you're in an elite space, right, you will find that a large, large percentage of children are half Asian and half white, you know, yeah. specifically half Jewish. And that <laughs> those kids are basically the ascendant population. No, I'm, I'm not kidding. You know, and I, I was talking to my friend about this because, uh, you know, we both have kids who are like some part Jewish and, and half Korean. And I was basically saying that like, this population of this one demographic of half Korean, half Jewish kids is going to is by far the most have the most educated and wealthy parents of any demographic in the country, don't you think? Like across the board, if you can think of one demographic that has the highest rate, where like the the largest percentage of both parents are like highly educated and high wage earners, it's probably yeah. that, right? And so if you go in these elite, if you go in these elite spaces, you find a lot of them. And I, I don't know, I've thought about it with my own daughter as well. But then I just think, well, she's going to go to school in a place where she's going to not be, you know, yeah. it's not like she's gonna be the only Asian. It's like she's not going to be the only like half, you know, half a kid there. In fact, there's gonna be a ton of them, yeah. you know. <laughs> and so that is weird to me. Like, I can't quite put yeah. my head around it. I think about it quite a bit. Because, you know, for me, growing up, I was almost always one of the only Asian kids growing up. And so, like, you know, that's weird. And it's like, uh, you know, it, it's not great, but it, you learn to deal with it and you become a stronger person because of it. But it's just like, it, does that just mean that the kids are white, you know, like essentially? So that's a central question that I have yeah. a lot. Um, what do you guys think? I, I was talking to my, so I was talking to my cousin whose daughters are much older and are, have already gone through this a little bit. And my cousin and I grew up in, you know, suburban Seattle, Everett. Um, where we were like the only Asian kid at the time. And I was asking her, like, um, do you worry, like, kind of like what you're saying, Jay, like, are they going to be too soft <laughs> in the sense yeah. that they aren't going to be like, <laughs> know. you know, like called racist names and like have to toughen up and, and, <laughs> and, and, and like, you know, navigate skillfully between like their private life and their public life and their immigrant household and their, and yeah, she was, I mean, you know, this might be like our being, our generation being scarred by our own immigration experiences, but yeah, we're both like, we're worried they're going to be soft and they're, it's going to be like, it's going to be too easy. Um, and it's not, it's not being code for white. You mean? <laughs> yeah. We're just like, you know, they don't have that hardened experience that I think of, of feeling like, you know, this country's tough and it's, and it's tough in a, in a majority white country with being a minority. And, um, and when you're in these schools that are incredibly, like you said, like, diverse and everyone's a liberal and they kind of uh i don't know I, I do i do kind of feel like a big part of who i am is like coming from that childhood experience i don't know if you guys feel the same way um the, you know the thing i'm most curious about tammy i want to get your sense of this is like um and andy i agree like you know i probably put <laughs> way 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 too much uh of you know my own hero myth story into like you know being racially bullied as a child but like um 
I want to know, like, what is, and this is goes to the listener's question, which was just like, how are how are the people who ta- who are brought in to teach diversity and to teach, you know, every school is going to have these programs or already has these programs to talk about, at, you know, like racial differences and yeah. equality and equity. How are they going to talk about like half Asian, half white kids, yeah. you know, in 10 years, right? Like, especially in places where they're going to be like a large part of the population. Like, so if somebody comes into like, let's say St. Anne's in Brooklyn or something like that, or they go to Dalton or, or Horace Mann, these are all sort of elite private schools in New York City that are going to have large populations of half Asian kids in them. Are they going to talk about them like they're white? You know, are they going to talk about them like they're quote POCs or is some other categorization going to come up to to discuss them? The last thing I'm totally unconvinced will happen, right? Like it's still going to be the same categories, but like how are they going to be discussed is interesting. And especially since like uh, kids who are multiracial across the board, the percentages, of course, are, you know, going up every single day, you know, and so how do you discuss any of them? I don't actually believe that the sort of uh, diversity class bureaucrat class actually has the ability to discuss that in any sort of meaningful way. So I don't think they will. I think they'll be in charge of that conversation. And so I think it'll continue to be bad. (laughs) I think, yeah. And I think all of the quote unquote diversity curriculum to date is still completely centered on the black white binary and actually doesn't incorporate like immigration or mixed racedness at all. Like I had uh, the kid I'm closest to is now 13, but I think when she was about nine, she came over, she's white and what goes to like some progressive school for mostly intellectual children, intellectuals, children. And she said to me, I'd, I'd spend so many hours with her before this, but she said, Tammy, are you, are you white or black? <laughs> it was actually a brilliant question, you know, but I was like, holy shit, you know, that is literally, those are the what choices she was given in her diversity education. Yeah. My friend yeah. who's like white Jewish leftist, like kind of grimaced and was like, but it was a good conversation. Cause I was yeah. able to like talk to her about like what that means and like the holes in her education. But I, yeah, I, I wish I were a bit more hopeful about it. I think like the problem with the diversity education is it's completely centered around like hitting a few like woke talking points and then backpatting. So yeah. it actually has no real interest in getting into these issues, right? We would actually yeah. have to have a historical education instead that was meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. They're not going to tell, you know, they're not going to tell my child, like, you know, actually, you know, as half Korean and half and like part Jewish, you're from the large, most successful demographic. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike if you were half Jewish, you know, or whatever, some other mixture that would be, you know, that's the, that sort of race sciencey stuff is like, you know, is bad, but it also feels (laughs) like it's a, yeah, no, I mean, it's bad, but but, but it is more honest to say that like, look, these people generally come from this class when they meet these people at elite schools, you know, and they go into these jobs and they have kids and they move Mm -hmm. to these places and then their kids don't have to worry about it because there's like 14 Hoppe kids in their ballet class, (laughs) you know, like that's sort of like, that's, that's in the end what, what you end up with. And like, that's sort of what, you know, that's what, yeah. American progress is supposed to look like, right? When, when I, um, and uh, assimilation. And I'm not saying any of this stuff is good. I'm just saying that yeah. this is yeah. like... I'm, yeah, what I'm curious yeah. about, you know, I think like teenage years, college years is when a lot of us um, yeah. get in touch, quote unquote, with our roots. And then I think that's going to be a, such an uneven experience across the board, depending especially on like who are their parents and like what's their own parents' relationship to Asia or, you know, wherever their parents come from. And... um. I don't know, John, if you thought about that, Jay, I've thought about, it. you know, I'm like preparing my daughter to feel super Asian. Um, um, and we'll see if she, if she, we'll see if she totally rejects it later. But like, um, 
In that you want her to have a relationship to Asia. Yeah. Like, and like just and Asian Americanness. Yeah, know the language and mm-hmm. and like know her grandparents and all that stuff. And um yeah, and because for me I was very confused and probably unhappy as a result of my confusion mm-hmm. uh, for a long time because I wasn't sure what to make of myself and I feel like you know, because uh, back to the whole like soft conversation, like maybe she'll be soft because it'll be like so easy and I'll just explain to her like <laughs> Chinese history and and, yeah. and and it'll be like, um, but you know, I can imagine for a lot of parents, this is like, they didn't think about this. Like they just like wanted to hook up and get married and have a kid. And then, you know, decade, a decade, two decades later, they have to actually like think about what is, you know, how do they explain to their kid, like where they came from and where their grandparents came from and what are they doing in this country and all that. Um, yeah, no, and I think I, I, uh, it's, it's going to be a mess. I agree with you there. And I don't, I think that the number of multiracial kids at these places is going to, you know, like, it's going to be so great that I think that maybe they'll have some sort of reckoning and they'll do some adjustment, but I don't have any faith that it will be in any sort of productive way. I think that that type of conversation is going to have to happen amongst those kids. And we see it, right? We see it on TikTok. We see it on sort oh, of yeah. young, young people platforms. And we're confused by it and we're scared by it. But they're figuring it out. They're figuring something out, you know? That's, <laughs> that Asian fetish video. I yeah, feel like yeah, we could yeah. talk about for episodes. Oh, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for the listeners, it was a, uh, it's a meme that went around on TikTok where half Asian kids uh, – lip sync this clip that says uh um you know my dad is a my dad is a conservative with an asian fetish um you know and then they show their mom <laughs> you know it's fucked up um all right so the last thing that we're going to talk about here because uh tammy you do have to go uh tammy do you want to choose one soon. yeah yeah it's the uh with the last one we have is a about uh diversity and equity and inclusion in in the academy do you want to read do you want to just pick yeah sure so this kind of ties in a little bit to what we were just talking about but um listeners adriana and ellen thanks for your questions on this i'll just read a bit of adriana's here there's a big push toward diversity equity and inclusion in academia right now as someone who is against racism but also skeptical of the culture war forms this stuff often takes is it worth my time to get involved with these efforts and try to push them in a positive direction And then from Ellen, can intellectual pursuit in Asian American studies exist independently of a relationship with Black studies? We have found over and over again in our readings across a number of disciplines that even those scholarly works that strive to create theories specific to the Asian Oriental can't seem to escape a desire to be applicable in Black studies as well. So one sort of on, I think, like the culture of like larger institutions and the other one on the particular formation of like non-Black ethnic and race studies. Yeah, and Adriana's question also goes on to mention that they were triggered by seeing a syllabus for a diversity inclusion equity inclusion course that left out both Asians and Latinos, despite two de- the two demographics making up seventy five percent of the student body. <laughs> oh um, so I, th- I think both of these questions are getting at what you were just talking about, Tammy, with the black white binary, yeah, more or less still being the default um, um, way of looking thinking about race, at least in institution from an institutional point of view. Um, yeah, what Ellen says is really interesting, I think, um, just in terms of, I didn't think about it that way, but I think she's correct that I think with Asian American, right, because it's framed as, uh, basically a subset of U.S. history, mm-hmm. it just has to speak to that black, white bar- binary in a way that, you know, like Asian history wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily, area studies wouldn't necessarily have to talk about, but that's really interesting. I don't, I don't, 
I think that I don't have any answers to that, but I think it's a really interesting observation. I wonder if like, I don't, I didn't do Asian American studies. I don't know if you guys ever took those classes. Um, I just kind of like swoop in and give my opinion once in a while. And, and, and I am Asian American, but I don't actually know what the configuration is like in that field. So I'm curious if, you know, maybe our, our other listeners have deeper thoughts about this. Well, one thing I just wanted to know, I'm, I'm not professionally in academia, obviously, but I was doing an interview with an ethnic studies person at Yale recently, and she was talking about how ethnic studies right now, because of austerity in academia, is kind of being pitted against FM studies. So their genesis, obviously, like ethnic studies, to some extent, modeled itself on FM studies, right? Because that was kind of like the OG in this sort of sphere of studies. Um, but now it's like they're just... <laughs> kind of having to compete with each other for students and for funding and for legitimacy within the academy. So I wonder if some of it has to do with that. And that seems like a really unfortunate, you know, yeah. false, you know, uh, conflict that that people have been put into. And so I wonder if that's also a discussion again about, you know, the class and distributive politics within academia. Well, a lot of the history of this, right, is that it, I mean, we talk about this moment all the time, but it's, you know, ethics studies comes out of a protest movement that starts in the late 60s, early 70s, and that the uh, the ideas of like Chicano studies and the ideas of Asian studies are founded on the idea of black studies, mm -hmm. right? And so there, the idea of ethnic studies is an outcropping of the, uh, of of black studies movement and black empower movement and on college campus, the late sixties, early seventies. And so of course it's, of course it's going to always interface with that. Right. Um, uh, and so, and I don't think that that's really changed much because these professors are like, you know, they're still teaching or their protégés are still teaching. And I think that those two will always be linked. As for this other part of it, I think that it's like, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that, that, Asian Americanness is inextricably tied with blackness, right? Like we just talked about the wig shop, you know, like the way that Korean hair salons and stuff like that came out. Um, and I don't think it's necessary to to deny any of that, right? Yeah. The problem that we have, I think, right now is that, and you know, I, I don't want I want to put this as like gently as possible, is that like I think that the one of the default modes of the academy and of the of the sort of media that follows the academy is always oppression Olympics based, right? And so I think the frustration doesn't come from the idea that it is that we can acknowledge the ways in which the Asian American experience is inextricably tied to the black American experience, right? I think the idea is that like that some people feel like they're silenced whenever they try and talk about the Asian American experience, right? And that there's a sort of tone like saying, well, why would that why would that matter? That's not as bad as X, right? And I think that's that's what people find a bit frustrating more mm -hmm. than just like being than talking about Asians and Blacks. I mean, uh, it's true. Like so much of Asian American studies is talking about the interactions with with Blackness. But I don't know. I think that's appropriate, right? Like it it is appropriate to talk about about the those economies, especially in the economic sense. Yeah. Um, Los yeah. Angeles, like all these small businesses that open up in black neighborhoods, you know, like, um, like even going back to like, uh, you know, like Chinese workers, right. And who are they displacing or who are they not displacing? Like, of course, all these things are, are part of that conversation. It's just, I think when people are told that that conversation is not worth having or is, or that they have to put a caveat up top saying like, well, we admit that this is not as bad. And that's when it gets a little bit like, you know, I yeah. think that's when people start getting a bit reactionary about it. And, 
Yeah, another example is I was I was think, looking at Chinese Exclusion Act stuff this weekend, and I didn't know this, but I guess there's an argument that the Southern politicians voted for Chinese exclusion, which was like a West Coast issue, in exchange for the West Coast politicians to kind of look the other way towards Reconstruction. So there was a sort of like bargaining where Black and Black and Asian workers were sort of seen as you know mutually sacrificed, I guess, between these white politicians, between the South and the West Coast. That was really interesting to me because you're you know they're always kind of taught it as two separate things. Um, the other thing that I think Ellen might have mentioned was something else interesting that in Asian American studies there's always this attempt to do the sort of like Afro Asian connection, but it's rarely kind of happens in reverse, right? And I wonder what the possibilities for that are for like someone within Black studies to also kind of look towards Asian American or Latino studies. Um, and if that conversation is happening and, you know, the, the most vocal, one of the most vocal voices now is sort of the sort of like doubling down on blackness, right. As the sort of centerpiece of black studies, Afro-pessimism. And I don't, I wonder if there's going to be, there are like, you know, a new generation of students within black studies, um, who are dissatisfied with that and do want to move beyond sort of a sort of Afrocentric reading of history and I would actually want to try to do that kind of mutually engage in that sort of lateral move between like black and Asian or black and Latino. And that'd be, that'd be something I don't know about, but I'd be curious to hear more about, um, you know, in the future. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would be hard to imagine that many of the incentives right now would be aligned for people. I think people will be interested in that and will do that work. I just don't know if they'll become like, you know, famous right. academics because of it, you know, right. like, uh, the best way to become an academic is just to be like Jessica Krug, you know, and <laughs> go, go fucking super woke radical, you know. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, what Ellen is talking about and what we've kind of just been processing is this, I guess, what Kathy Park Hong talks about in her book, Minor Feelings, which are this this feeling of like grievance that Asian people can't quite process because of these sort of enforced hierarchies, but I like this idea of especially attending to our intertwined economic histories as a way of broadening it. And, you know, if, I think if when we keep the focus on like power, this stuff like becomes less important. Right. And I to me, that's also like what Adriana is talking about in her frustration with this like DEI complex diversity, equity, inclusion, because like some of that stuff is so self-flagellating and obscene. It doesn't actually at all address who has power or money. So yeah, you know, I think I, like I was, we need if when we have those things imposed on us, we also need to push back against administrators and be like, this is this curriculum is actually bullshit. I know. I was thinking about that recently because, um, you know, I hope none of these people are listening to this podcast. But you know, I have applied for a couple <laughs> teaching positions, and I was thinking about it because I was like, well, they, I, I would be the diversity in a lot of these faculties, right? Like, or I'd yeah. be part of the diversity in a lot of these faculties. Um, and, uh, there are not many Asian journalists who teach, you know, journalism. Tammy is like the only one, <laughs> Tammy and like four other people maybe. And, uh, so that I would be brought in as a diversity and, you know, like, it's interesting cause I don't a really diversity. believe in, I don't believe in diversity. the bureau. I don't believe in bureaucratic ODI stuff, you know, like, uh, in universities, I think it's pretty toxic and I think it's, um, you know, I don't really care that it drives up the bill for these students, right? Because they would find something else to drive up the bill for these students. And I don't necessarily <laughs> even buy the the link that it definitely like drives up the bill on the students. But I care more about the fact that I think they're feeding like a pretty bad narrative to these kids. And um, 
you know, if I was forced to do that sort of stuff, would I actually do it? I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is, you know, because at some point you're just like, get over it, you know, like <laughs> you you have a job. This is part of the job. It doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. And are you really going to be the principled guy who's like, no, I will not, you know, uh, do X, <laughs> Y, and Z. Uh, but at the same time, like it does feel like, uh, you know, it's a strange position to be in because you do feel sort of compelled because you're the the quote-unquote diversity on the staff to also mirror those claims you know and if you don't and i can already imagine you know at some of these places i don't i don't think i'm gonna get hired but for, but like you know if i do go work at some of these <laughs> Not places anymore that, that, be, that some of those questions will be put to me you know and they'll ask yeah. me to be, serve on these committees and i'll just say no you know but like you know there's huh. there's like it's just it's just kind of like one of these things where i feel like especially in the academy people are going to strange position because i don't think that the politics that they might teach or the politics that or the vision of rights that they might hold in their heart really aligns with like the odi stuff right odi for our listeners being office of diversity and inclusion um right and yeah. um i don't think it really connects with with any students either you know like I, I remember we did a story at university of maryland this is the last thing and then we'll go but like uh um, University of Maryland, it was about offices of diversity and inclusion is a story I did when I was at Vice. And we talked to uh, a lot of the black students and they're just, they had no connection with ODI, right? And this was after like, remember like a student from Towson got murdered, got stabbed to death on Maryland's campus and it was fucking horrible. And so they're all traumatized by this and they're like, yeah, ODI sent a couple emails and like, <sighs> we don't hear from them. We don't even know what they do. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Like this bureaucracy is here to stay right? It's very powerful. And um, are there ways to meaningfully resist it? Uh, if you're in an academy, academic setting? Probably not, because you're probably going to get fired, right? So uh, I don't know. It's, I, I think the listeners bring up a very potent point. Andy, is that right or wrong? Am I being too alarmist? No, I mean, I feel like if I... Are you allowed to stay on the air? <laughs> I feel like if I was like really, really invested... Wait twice if it's right. <laughs> I would say if I was really invested, they would like welcome my feedback and I could like help redo the whole thing. I think most of us are just like, it's part of the job. Yeah. yeah. And it's and we would rather like teach and do research. And I think that's fair. And I think that's the bargain. Yeah. If there was a good ODI that like, you know was like reflected more of your politics and you felt it was more helpful, would you be more into joining that? Sure. I just don't know what that is, but I haven't thought too much about this. But okay. anyway, Tammy has to go, so. All right, Tammy, <laughs> Sorry, you got to go. Um, we're at 106 right now. Record, record short podcast. Thank you for listening. Uh, keep sending in your emails and questions. We really did appreciate them. We're going to read more of them. We're going to try and, I don't know, we'll read them like once every other episode or something like that. Not as many as this, but... Um, we will seed them through, and we certainly will respond to you. The email is at time is time to say goodbye at pod at gmail.com, and the Twitter is at TTSG pod. Um, and please subscribe to the newsletter. You can subscribe on iTunes. Uh, we, you know, I don't know. I think we have a pretty good rating on iTunes. <laughs> Weird. Are we allowed to talk about that? I've never been part of anything that has a, that has like a high rating. You know? <laughs> so, it's like a collective SAT score. So. I know, it feels amazing. Uh, so thank you for your ratings as well. Uh, we will talk to you next week. Bye.